Okay, chapter two is the primary assessment. So an introduction. Primary assessment is the basis of all pre-hospital emergency medical care. Purpose of the primary assessment is to identify and correct immediate life-threatening conditions of the patient's airway, breathing, and circulations. So primarily focus on the ABCs. And if we find these conditions during assessment, we treat them as, at once as soon as we find them. So when we start assessing the patient, if we notice a problem with the airway, we note gurgling respirations, we're going to take immediate action to correct that suction the patient's airway before we move on to assess breathing. Then we assess breathing. We take care of that. If we need to ventilate the patient, we'll start ventilating the patient before we move on to assess circulation and so forth. Following the primary assessment, decide priority regarding transport or on-scene assessment and care. After we finish up our uh, primary assessment, we use that information, we make that transport decisions, that priorities. Is this patient high priority that needs rapid transport to the hospital, or is this patient stable or has a condition that we can manage and treat on scene? <clears throat> it's not a true step-by-step -step process. Again, we are going to use that information that we find. That information is going to dictate the next thing that we perform but it's a series of critical decisions based on what you find. Again, we proceed systematically through the ABCs. Steps of the primary assessment. First thing we're gonna do, as soon as we lay eyes on the patient, we start our primary assessment. We're gonna form our general impression. If the patient has a suspected spinal injury or has the potential for a spinal injury, we're going to stabilize cervical spine as needed. We're going to assess baseline mental status. Then we move to our ABCs, airway, breathing. Also, along with breathing, remember, we also assess the need for oxygenation as well, and then circulation. And again, after we work through those ABCs, the end of our primary assessment, we determine patient priorities. Again, does this patient need to be a rapid transport, load and go? Does this patient have a condition that we can manage more on scene and not have to worry so much about loading and going? So forming a general impression. General impression is the first intuitive evaluation of the patient. Determine general clinical status and priority for immediate transport by exploring. Things that we're kind of keeping an eye on. The environment. Is the environment, is the scene safe? We're going to think back, hark back on our mechanism of injury, the nature of illness, patient's posture and overall look. If we know their chief complaint at this point, their chief complaint, and just your instinct. So again, our general impression, as soon as we lay eyes on the patient, does this patient look stable or does this patient look in bad shape? If we're dealing with a patient that's in possibly cardiac arrest, unresponsive, showing no signs of life, we quickly assess uh, for responsiveness and breathing while we're feeling for a pulse. If pulse is absent, then we start chest compression, start CPR starting with chest compressions. At that point, if they are in cardiac arrest, we follow the American Heart Association guidelines. 
Patients that are showing signs of life or that are not in cardiac arrest, now we do our traditional primary assessment following the ABCs. We're going to try to determine if it's easily available, if this is a medical or a trauma patient. Again, most of the time, that's pretty easy. We get called to a car wreck, patients that sit in the vehicle, major damage to the vehicle, it's obviously going to be a trauma. Other times, though, it may not be very readily apparent. We may have to do more of an investigation, ask questions to try to determine, is this a medical or trauma? And remember, it can be a combination of both. We find a person that if fell, laying on the floor, struck their head, well, what caused them to fall? Did they trip? In that case, if they tripped, it's just a trauma. However, if they got lightheaded and dizzy or passed out, then fell, now it is a medical and a trauma victim. Oftentimes, the more serious the condition, the quieter the patient will be. If the patient's critical, they're likely probably unresponsive, so they're not making any noises. Again, pay attention to your environment. Look, listen, smell the environment. It can give you clues about what could potentially be going on with the patient. And again, as we're entering the residence, the building, or wherever the patient's located, gather clues about the scene as well. We go in for an unconscious patient, we walk in and it looks like there was a party that was just thrown. There's empty liquor bottles and beer cans laying everywhere. Pretty much narrow it down, the patient's probably just extremely intoxicated, so forth. Remember to use standard precautions with every patient, gloves at a bare minimum. If the patient is, is alert, identify yourself and establish a report. If that patient is conscious, the first words out of your mouth should be, hi, my name is Mason, I'm a paramedic. What's going on today? I've introduced myself, start building that rapport, and I'm asking questions to try to determine what the chief complaint is. Reassure your patient, listen to him, or, and do not trivial, trivialize their complaints and support your patients psychologically and physiologically as well. Not only are we treating their medical conditions, their physical ailments, but we also need to take care of their emotional state as well. For trauma patients, mechanism of injury is significant or the patient is unresponsive, we immediately stabilize the patient's head and neck as we approach that scene. As we approach that patient, have one of our partners immediately hold C-spot. If the patient is awake, explain what you are doing to them and ask them to not move their neck. We can, if our protocols allow us to, we can perform self-restriction on the patient. We want the patient to keep everything neutral in line placement on their own and just ask them not to move their head or neck. Patient is a small child, place towel or pad beneath their shoulders to maintain proper alignment for of the cervical spine. So remember, kiddos, young kiddos, have their occipital region of their skulls are proportionally hard, larger. So if we lay a small kid completely flat on the ground, their head is naturally going to want to rock forward. So in order to maintain that neutral inline placement, pad underneath their shoulders and their torso. So again, manually stabilize the head, the neck, on first contact with the patient if we do suspect the possibility of a spinal injury. And again, for small kiddos, pad underneath the shoulders and the torso to keep that head and neck in that neutral inline position. 
So again, we form that general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient. After we form that general impression, now we start assessing their mental status. We're gonna assess that this is gonna be our baseline mental status that we're gonna to use to compare the future mental status to see if there's any changes. And if there is changes in the patient's mental status, whether it's good or bad, again, we're gonna to have to make sure that we're documenting that in our run reports as well. So what is the mnemonic that we use to check baseline vital signs, or baseline vital signs, baseline mental status during our primary assessment? What'd you say, Keely? You mouthed it. AVPU. AVPU. So Daisy, what does the A stand for? Alert. Okay, Christian, the V. Verbal stimulus. Verbal. Uh, Zach, the P. Painful. And Hunter, the U. Unresponsive. Unresponsive. Very good. So, again, just very basic. We're going to get our AFPU from our patients. If the patient is alert talking to us, we also need to assess for orientation as well. So are they alert and oriented or are they alert and confused? So remember, with alert, patient's awake, eyes are open. We check orientation. Normal orientation, we've documented it as AAO times four, and that means they're alert and oriented to person, place, time, and event. Organize coherent answers to questions. And again, they may be alert, but confused or disoriented. And keep a high level of suspicion when you encounter a quiet child, as it may be an indication that a child is seriously injured or ill. A kid that's moderately or even minorly, in some cases, a small kid that's injured, what are they going to do? They're going to be crying. They're going to be upset. They're going to be kind of trying to get away from us, clinging to mom or dad or so forth. So even if we work on a walk on in on a small kid that's alert, looking around, but is extremely quiet, not moving too much, that should be a worrisome sign to us. If they're not obviously alert when we walk in, now we're going to check to see if they respond to verbal stimulus. Patient appears to be unresponsive, but does have some response when you talk to him. We come up to him and shout, hey, or if we know their name, say their name. Do they have some type of response to that verbal stimulus? They can respond by speaking, opening eyes, moaning, or just moving. It doesn't have to be fully awakening to that verbal stimulus. If they have some type of response, they're alert to a verbal stimulus. Note, patients respond to verbal stimuli, stimuli in the documentation. If all they do is moan but don't open their eyes by shouting their name, again, that's something that we definitely need to document. Infants, you may have to shout to elicit some response for them. If they don't respond to verbal stimulus, now we move on to assess a response to painful stimulus. Ways that we can elicit or inflict painful stimuli, we can do sternal rubs is a pretty common one. We gotta be cautious using sternal rubs on patients that have suspected chest trauma as well. Uh, Press pin to the patient's finger or pinch the shoulder muscles, the trapezius pinch. You can do the armpit pinch as well. If they do not 
respond to peripheral painful stimulus. If we do the fingernail, the pin underneath the finger or the, on top of the fingernail bed, whatever the case may be, if they don't respond to that, we do need to check a central pain response on top of it. They may have response to central painful stimulus, but not peripheral. Trapezius pinch is a, is a, a good one to use. Sternal rubs are probably though the most common. They may not be the best, but they are the most common. May respond by waking up, speaking, moaning, opening eyes, and moving. If they we have some type of movement, we then need to classify that movement as either being purposeful movement or non-purposeful movement. Examples of non-purposeful movement include posturing. Decorticate and then decerebate posturing are non-purposeful movement. Those typically indicate injury to the brain. So Ashley, which one is decorticate posturing? Is it when they're like crunched up like this? Yes. So legs are going to be extended. Arms are going to be withdrawn or uh, closed. And the cordiate or the cerebrate, I'm sorry, is going to be the other one. <clears throat> so the cordiate arms are flexed. The cerebrate arms are extended. Lower extremities are always going to be extended. If they have no response to a painful stimulus, then we mark them down as being unresponsive. Any alterations or de deteriorations in mental status may indicate emergent or a serious problem. And a big thing that we worry about with patients that have an altered mental status is the ability to, lose, to control their airway. So be very vigilant of that. Assess for that and be prepared to address and control that airway for the patient if they can't do so themselves. Next step, now we're moving into our ABC. So, first step is going to assess the airway. Patient is responsive, it can speak clearly. You can assume the patient's airway is paid. So, all of us in here, by just looking at you, I know your primary assessment is going to be good. Your airway is obvious, clear, obviously clear. You're obviously breathing effectively because you're all conscious and circulation is going to be good because you're, again, conscious. The patient is unconscious. The airway may be obstructed by the tongue or foreign body. Remember, the tongue is the most common cause of an airway obstruction in an unconscious patient. It's also the easiest to fix as well, positioning OPAs, MPAs. Assume that an unconscious patient, patients have no gag reflex and cannot protect their airway. Again, we have to be prepared to protect it for them. High likelihood that secretions have settled in the hypopharynx, meaning that we're going to have to suction the airway. And again, gurgling respirations indicates fluid covering the airway. Gurgling respirations, instant indication to suction the airway. Opening the patient's airway, cervical spinal injury, a possible cervical spine injury, we use the jaw thrust maneuver to open the patient's airway, keeping the head and neck in that neutral inline position. However, even if we do suspect a spinal injury and we cannot open the airway with just a jaw thrust and have no other means of maintaining that airway, we can then go to a head tilt chin lift. If we can't open that airway, it doesn't matter about that spinal injury. It doesn't matter what else is going on with that patient. The patient's going to die. <clears throat> 
So if a jaw thrust doesn't work and we have no other options, we can do a head tilt chin lift. For any other patient that does not have a suspected spinal injury, just go straight to your jaw thrust maneuver. It's easier to perform, it's more effective as well. So jaw thrust maneuver, again, we place our thumbs on the patient's cheeks typically, index fingers around the curvature of the jaw, and all we do is lift that jaw up towards the sky. Head, tail, chin lift, just what it sounds like. Rock that patient's head back. For uh, infants and children, apply gentle and conservative extension of the head and neck. Just be cautious. You can overextend that kid's neck and actually kink off the airway. To assess, once the airway is open, we position the head and so forth. Look for chest rise while you listen and fear, feel for air movements. So look, listen, and feel. You can put your face, your cheek down close to the patient's mouth and nose to feel in here. And then we're also going to look down the patient's chest, looking for chest rise and fall. If we have a noisy airway, that includes it, it indicates a partial obstruction. Again, can be from the tongue, can be from liquids, can be from swelling of the airway as well. Again, gurgling respirations or gurgling breathing indicates fluid over the airway. And again, as soon as we note gurgling respirations, we have to immediately suction out that patient's airway. Strider is that harsh, high-pitched sound heard upon inspiration. It's caused by life-threatening upper airway obstructions. Can include things like warm body, warm bodies that the patient's actively choking on, or can include infections and or swelling of the larynx as well. If foreign body airway obstruction is suspected, patient may need chest or abdominal thrust in an attempt to remove the obstruction. So again, follow American Heart Association guidelines for choking at this point. If the patient's conscious and it's an adult or a child, we're going to do the Heimlich maneuver. If they're unresponsive, we're going to start CPR. But now since that we are advanced and we've learned intubation, we can also visualize the obstruction using a laryngoscope using a McGill forceps if we can to remove whatever the patient is choking on. If the patient has suspected respiratory burns, they cause rapid massive swelling of the upper airway. So rapid endotracheal intubation and these patients are gonna be indicated. Even if the patient's conscious, alert, well-oriented, these patients need to be intubated immediately before that swelling occurs and totally occludes that airway. So these patients, instantaneously you're going to get PAI'd or RSI'd based depending on your terminology. Us at advanced, again, we don't have that capabilities. Paramedics are going to have to intubate using drugs to facilitate that intubation. Anaphylaxis, epinephrine is needed to decrease the upper airway swelling. Anaphylaxis causes that swelling, also causes bronchial constriction, which will cause wheezing. Lung sounds and bronchodilator medications may be needed. Epi is going to be the drug that the patient needs instantly to try to relieve that anaphylactic reaction. But after we give that epi, if the patient is still having some slight wheezing or wheezing, we can also throw a bronchodilator on top of that epi as well. If the patient's in respiratory arrests when the patient is not breathing, is not moving air. 
So the patient's not breathing adequately on their own at all. So we're going to bag the patient, immediately provide BVM ventilations with the BVM hooked up to high flow O2. If the patient is unconscious and does not have a gag reflex, go ahead and insert your OPA. Again, that's going to help us maintain that airway, keep the tongue from causing an obstruction. If gag reflex or significant oral facial trauma is present, we can insert an NPA as well. Just again, remember those contraindications for an NPA, mid-face fractured, uh, skull fractures or facial fractures and so forth. So again, immediately use a BDM to ventilate patients who are not moving air or, or those who are not breathing adequately on their own. Again, using a BVM to rescue your technique is always going to be preferred. However, it's very rarely done. We typically don't have enough resources to tie up to rescuers. If the patient has no gag reflex and cannot protect their own airway, so they're unresponsive, no gag reflex, they're having a hard time controlling their airway. We can that's enough, enough justification right there to intubate the patient. We should intubate the patient. So use advanced techniques to maintain airway patency. Again, unresponsive, no gag reflex, not maintaining airway, intubate the patient, or use other devices or backup devices like our biads. Just remember the steps for intubation, we do have to pre-oxygenate the patient before we attempt these advanced airways. And it's always BLS before ALS. Patient has airway problems, shows signs of hypoxia, but is breathing with adequate rate and depth. Now we're gonna apply supplemental O2. So patient may be in respiratory distress, may be hypoxic, but they're breathing adequately on their own. Since they're breathing adequately on their own, we don't need to breathe for them. We just need to supplement their, their oxygenation with high flow O2, non-rebreather mask, assess the need for additional medications, uh, bronchodilators, and so forth. After we assure the airway is taken clear, uh, care of, is clear, now we move on to assess breathing. Assess your patient for adequate breathing, immediately notes any signs of inadequate breathing. Again, two main things we look at to determine if a patient is breathing adequately or not on their own is rate and tidal volume. Both of them have to be adequate in order for us to consider the patient having adequate breathing. Altered mental status, confusion, apprehension, and agitation. If the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, it's going to affect their level of consciousness. We start depriving that brain of oxygen, it's going to start malfunctioning. Pay attention for respiratory distress as well. Are they having a hard time breathing or, talk, or uh, talking while they're, are they having a hard time breathing while they're speaking? Indications of retractions. Use of accessory muscles all indicate a heightened effort to breathe. Look for asymmetrical chest wall movement as well. Again, accessory muscle use, cyanosis, which indicates hypoxia. Do they have any audible sounds that indicates trouble breathing? Abnormal patterns, abnormally rapid, slow, or shallow breathing. Nasal flaring, which indicates a heightened work of breathing as well. 
assess their rate and quality of breaths. Are they agonal, slow, infrequent gasps, not moving any air? Is it slow, slower than normal? Is it rapid, too quick? Labored, are they struggling? Does it look like they're having a hard time breathing? Non-labored, normal? And again, if we notice that the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, we immediately start assisting ventilations with a BVM. Again, if we bag a patient, typically it's always going to be attached to supplemental O2 as well. Need to know what normal rates are. And remember, respiratory rates are based on age. The younger the patient is, typically the faster they're going to be breathing. So you'll notice newborns breathe 30 to 60. And as they age, that's going to slowly, gradually start going down until you get to adolescence and then adulthood in the normal range of 12 to 20. Note the respiratory pattern that the patient's uh, breathing. Rapid tachypnic, deep is hyperipnic. Respirations is a compensatory mechanism and may indicate the body's attempt to rid itself of excessive acid. Y'all start talking about acid-based balance yet? So y'all should be aware of that. Look for abnormal patterns as well, Shane Stokes, increasing and decreasing breaths followed by periods of apnea. It's going to indicate a head injury, brainstem injury, or increasing intracranial pressure. Diets respirations, short gasping or irregular breaths. Again, also typically indicates a brain injury. Some patients with acute pulmonary edema can benefit from the use of CPAP. Assess neck and chest before moving on to circulation as well. That's part of your uh, breathing assessment is ensuring that the neck is intact and the chest is intact as well. So if we have open chest wounds, we can immediately correct those during our primary assessment. And again, if we notice a life-threatening injury, we treat it immediately before moving on. So CPAP, again, works very well for uh, congestive heart failure or pulmonary edema. Tension pneumothorax, you haven't talked about these yet in trauma, or y'all haven't talked about pleural decompressions yet, but if we do note a tension pneumothorax, those need to be immediately treated with a pleural decompression. We get a large IV catheter, 14-gauge IV catheter, the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. So we insert that IV catheter, and then we drain the air, that pressure, out of that thoracic cavity. After we sure breathing is taken care of, we quickly assess the chest and neck as well. Now we move on to circulation. Consists of evaluating the patient's pulse, skin, and controlling hemorrhaging. Adults and kiddos, we palpate radial pulse. The radial pulse is absent. We go straight to check a carotid pulse. Infants, brachial pulses are where we assess pulses at. And if we haven't already determined this, but as soon as we determine that the patient is pulseless and apneic, we immediately start chest compressions on the patient following CAB. 
American Heart Association guidelines. We're going to assess pulses for rate and quality. It's over 100 beats per minute. We consider that tachycardic. If it's less than 60 beats per minute, it's considered bradycardic. We also should note the quality and regularity of those pulses as well. And again, normal pulses are strong and regular. Again, abnormal pulse rates are similar to that to respirations. The younger the patient is, the faster their resting heart rates are typically are. As they age, they go back down to a normal level, what we consider normal for adults. So 100 to 180 for an infant or a newborn, and slowly, gradually decrease to 60 to 100 for adults. Bleeding control during our primary assessment. Major bleeding originates either with trauma or medical emergencies. And again, if we notice major bleeding, we can take immediate actions to correct them. As soon as we see major bleeding, we can immediately throw on direct pressure. So again, take steps to control it. Start with direct pressure first. If it's on an extremity, we can use tourniquets as well if we can't control it with direct pressure. And we also do have the option of using those hemostatic agents such as quick clot. And if the patient's showing indications of internal bleeding, remember there's not much we do for an internal bleeding. Supportive measures, rapid transport to the hospital. <clears throat> During our circulatory assessment, we're also going to be assessing the skin. We want to know the temperature. Is it not necessarily the tympanic or the actual temp, but just how it feels? Is it cold to the touch, warm to the touch, or hot to the touch? Moisture of the skin. Is it dry, diaphoretic? Any abnormal colors to the skin? Is it mottled? Indicates poor perfusion. Cyanotic. Bluing, hypoxia, pale skin, ashen, flushed, jaundice, whatever the condition may be. Suspect conditions related to or caused by poor perfusion. If the skin is getting poor perfusion, we can assume or at least consider the possibility that the internal organs are starting to have poor perfusion as well. So skin color, temperature, and moisture. After we work our way through our ABCs, we gather all that information from our primary assessment. Now we're going to make our priority determination. Again, determine that patient's priorities. If the primary assessment suggests a serious illness or injury, we can perform a rapid trauma assessment or rapid secondary assessment. Again, there's multiple terminologies all meaning the same thing which is just a head-to-toe assessment to identify other life-threatening conditions. Again, we base that for trauma based on what we find in the primary assessment and also what we see in the mechanism of injury. And if it is a major critical trauma, we found problems during that primary assessment, it will be rapid transport for trauma victims. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines for Field Triaging Patients. We are going to assess vital signs and level of consciousness, where the patient is injured at, mechanism of injury, any other abnormal findings that we find during our assessment. Based on those items, we're going to determine what type of facility 
the patient needs to be transported to. Trauma centers, rural healthcare centers, and so forth. I'm not going to go through that, but it is there for y'all to review. Lubbock, again, this region, we're pretty, pretty lucky. We have two high-level trauma centers that are across the street. So if it's a major trauma in Lubbock, they're going to either UMC or Covenant. So in summary, primary assessment is the crucial first stage of assessing the patient. During this, the goal is to identify and correct immediate life threats to the patient. And in most patients, primary assessment is going to take less than one minute to perform. Again, I can do a primary assessment on a conscious patient, all of y'all, in almost instantaneously. Y'all are all stable. Your primary assessment is fine. Again, after that primary assessment, we confirm priority determination and transport rapidly if it's obviously indicated at that point as well. All right. Any questions on 